Well, this uh, sermon was supposed to be a two-part series that I did back in June while Cole was on vacation, but my body had other plans for me uh, for that period. And so I'm going to try to condense it down and share this passage in one message. And what we're doing here is we're, we're plopping down in the middle of somewhere. And whenever you plop down in the middle of somewhere, you've got to figure out where you are. Because if you don't know where you are, it's kind of hard to get where you need to be or even to understand. And if you don't know where you are, you might head off in a really bad direction. Uh, I always wonder what would happen if somebody snuck in Disney World at night and moved all the you are here dots. Just kind of randomly moved them around on the map, you know, and people just started kind of coming in and, and saying, well, here, well, you know, yeah, I'm, that's the men's room, not Space Mountain. How do we get here? You know, and just kind of not know what was going, what was where. So we kind of have to know where we are. So we're dropping into the middle of a book. We're dropping into the middle of the book of Hebrews and parachuting in and landing on top of a major transition in the book, the major transition really in the book. We're coming in right behind a fabulous theological treatise on the Christian faith and, and on the supremacy of Christ in all things. Uh, we are coming in and to an understanding of the accomplishments of our great high priests. Uh, and we're coming in right before verse 26, which is one of the five very sobering uh, warning passages uh, that are there in the Scripture. And so if you have your Bible, turn and, and follow along with us. I think it's page 1007 uh, in the Pew Bibles if you want to grab one of those or your mobile device or whatever it is that you have. And let's kind of drop into verse 19 here and, and see what the Lord has to say to us in this text. Because here in the text, what's happening is He's moving from an explanation and instruction about Christ and about who Christ is and the supremacy of Christ. It's been taking place in the first ten and a half chapters in the supremacy of the gospel and into an exhortation here for the remainder of the book, kind of a common New Testament pattern. Here's the truth, and because of that, here's what you need to do. And so that's the pattern that we're following along in here. So if you want to just kind of summarize it down quickly, he's going to give us three realities, and then he's going to give us three exhortations. So three realities followed by three exhortations, and these three realities are really kind of a follow-up to really everything that's been going on in the first ten chapters, the first ten and a half chapters of the book. He summarizes it here right in the beginning of verse 19. And so what are the three realities? Well, the first of those three realities we find in verse 19 is confident access to the holy places. Verse 19 says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, I love how Eugene Peterson puts that in the message. He says, so friends, we can now without hesitation walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice. Jesus cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice. So we can come confidently into the presence and in the most holy place. The gist is that we follow Christ into the holy place. In essence, as we go in, we're saying, hey, I'm with him. I'm with him. You know, I, got, I hate to blow all your jokes, but St. Peter's really not going to be at the gate checking credentials. It's really not going to happen. And, and, you know, nobody's going to ask, why should I let you into heaven when you get there? Because they already know. They already know because I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. They already know because of the work of the blood of Christ. 
They already know that the, the way's been cleared. They already know that, that the path has been set for us, and we can come boldly and freely into that most holy place. So that's the first reality. The second reality is that it's a new and living way. Look at verse 20. He says, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Beautiful song that we sang to that end today. We can't really do this just, this justice. The, that one verse could be a series of sermons. You know, every commentary, every article, even every different translation that I read, just, just more and more and more just came to light and uh, then something else will come to light, and then something else, historical references, incredible imagery that's there, even controversy about what some aspects of it mean. But just to kind of summarize it, give it to you in a, in a bite-sized piece, it's new. What does the new mean? You see, Jesus has created here something that the Jewish audience didn't have a category for. He's creating a way to God that, that they didn't understand, that, that wasn't in their frame of reference. And that word new, you know, interestingly, it, it can actually be translated freshly slaughtered. Let's go have lunch. The only place it's used in the whole New Testament. This is the one usage of that word in the whole New Testament. And the idea and the meaning here is that this whole system has changed. The whole system is, and, and the sacrifice of Christ is still fresh. It doesn't get old. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't lose its effectiveness over time. It's still all that it ever was. It is still fresh regardless of the passage of time. The whole system has changed. The old system of the repeated spilling of the blood of animals over and over and over, the spilling of the blood of animals, which was only sufficient for the high priest to come once a year into the earthly presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and only then for a short time, and only after purification. But what's the new way? The new way is that a single death, the single shedding of blood, once for all, the spilling of Christ's blood is sufficient not just for the high priest, but for all those who believe to come for eternity, not just for a short while, into the heavenly presence, not just the earthly presence, through the sacrifice of one who needed no purification, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Even as His flesh was torn so was the curtain, that veil between the presence of God and the presence of man. The veil of his flesh, which in itself was really a barrier to God. Veiled in flesh, the song says, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Because only a crucified Savior whose flesh was torn could save us. And as the veil of his flesh was torn, so was torn the veil of the temple. And we have that reminder, we have that reality through the tearing of that veil, that that separation that existed between us and God has been torn from top to bottom. It no longer exists because of Christ giving us a new way, not just a new way, but a living way, the way of a risen, living Savior. A salvation that was no longer imaged by death after death after, de after death of sacrificed animals, but a salvation built around a living Savior who died once for all and who now lives making intercession for us. There need be no more shedding of blood. His sacrifice was sufficient 
for all. And then there's the third reality. The third reality of verse 20 is since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now briefly, as as Christmas approaches, some pastors will choose, rightly so, as their Christmas text, not one of the passages from the Gospels, but they'll choose maybe Philippians 2, what we refer to as the the kenosis of Christ or the emptying of Christ. That though he didn't he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself. But here in Hebrews, the writer wants us to understand, and he wants us to remember that, yes, Christ humbled himself. Yes, Christ took the form of a servant. Yes, though he lived in lowly estate, don't ever forget who he was. Don't ever forget the reality that Christ was superior to Moses in God's house. Talked about that back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You don't look, we won't turn there now, but, but go look at that sometime. Beautiful expression of Moses and Christ. Moses was the faithful servant in God's house, but Christ was the faithful son in God's house. And the faithful son trumps the faithful servant any day. And we have, as our great priest, the faithful son. We have, as our great priest, the superior one. Three realities that bring incredible security to us. Reality that we come confidently into the holy place. The reality that it's a new and living way by which we come. And the confidence and security that we get from the authority of our great high priest, being the one who has gone before us, the one where the the veil is torn, and he opens the way for us. But then there are three exhortations. So we have three realities. In light of these realities, that's really what it's saying, in light of these realities, now here's three things I want you to do. Three things I want you to accomplish. It kind of summarizes in verse 19 through 21 all of what Hebrews have been talking about. So the first exhortation he gives us is to draw near. Because we can, through the blood of Christ. We don't need to hesitate in that drawing near. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, the ladies are familiar with this concept, because if you're involved in women's ministry, the theme verse for this year is chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews, which is a, another place where in the book where we're told to draw near. That comes just before Christ's teaching, oh, the, the, the uh, Hebrews teaching on the priestly work, high priestly work of Christ. But here in chapter 10, the writer calls for action on that. He says, you heard the why, now act on it. Because we can confidently enter the holy place and and because of the new and living way that he's opened up for us and and because of our great priests, go ahead and dare to draw near. Go ahead and dare and be free to act on all that Christ has given us. But he says do so with some characteristic things. Not, Not so much conditions, that's probably the wrong way to look at it, but more characteristics. One, he says with a true heart. 
Now, what does that mean? Your translation may say sincere, depending on which version you're using, or it may say genuine. And genuine probably captures it best uh, uh, as far as the meaning. He says, you know, draw near with a, a genuine heart. You know, not a perfect heart. So often we're afraid to approach God because maybe we feel like our heart's not where it needs to be. What a great time to approach God. When we confess and we admit and we acknowledge that. So he's not telling us to come if our heart is perfect. He's not telling us to come if we're not struggling. He's not telling us to come if we have it all together. He's just saying come without pretense. Come with sincerity. Be who you are and come and be honest before the Lord with who you are. Not pretending because we don't need to pretend. There's no need for us to pretend to be something that we are not. So simply come not pretending. Come in honesty before the Lord. Secondly, he says, come with the full assurance of faith. Now, what does that mean? The full assurance of faith, you know, by grace, we're saved through faith. Our assurance never could be, never has been, never could be based on our own merit. We're confident but not confident in self. That's where we go wrong. If we're ever confident in ourselves or our own ability to accomplish this. But this full assurance that comes from knowing who Christ is, from knowing what Christ has done, from knowing the sufficiency, which this book is all about, the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. The full assurance of faith that doesn't come from our own doing. He says, come with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and, and fourthly from bodies washed with pure water. That's, that's a little harder to understand. And frankly, there was little agreement on anything that I read. I, I read several, you know, you kind of have your go-to commentators, the people that you sort of really trust and you kind of go to when you just can't figure something out. They all said something different. You know, I'm thinking a lot of help you guys are. And, and, you know, it's not easy to understand. It's not easy to discern. But, but as I kind of parsed it all down and, and, and let it steep for a while in some form, in the simplest form, what this seems to be speaking to, again, what we talked about in, in baptism, what Ken mentioned before baptizing his children, is the idea that it is this outward manifestation of something that has happened on the inside. Something's occurred on the inside. There's this heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And then our bodies washed. There's an internal, external sense of this. Whether some believe, as, as some believe that it's water baptism that's being talked about here, or whether as others believe it's a change in conduct, it's a change in our life when, you know, kind of to put it in a modern day vernacular, kind of clean up your act kind of thing and, and live differently because of what has happened on the inside as a result of Christ. Maybe some of all of those things. The essence of it is that we're cleansed on the inside by the blood of Christ. And that manifests itself on the outside, perhaps in obedience to baptism as we saw this morning, perhaps by a life that's brought more in line with the nature and the character of Christ, maybe all of that, maybe all of that. But we draw near, manifesting on the outside the reality of what has happened on the inside. The outside doesn't come first. The inside is the transforming work. That brings us to the second exhortation. And that's in Hebrews 
10.23, and it's to hold fast. Hold fast. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Our faith is in the work of Christ on the cross. It's not in our ability to do any of these things. That's why we're secure. The hope then gives us free entry to the holy place. The hope we proclaim and and, and declare to a lost and dying world. We hold fast to that hope. We hold fast to it without wavering. There's times when our faith wavers. I think it's interesting that it uses the word here, hope, rather than the word faith. Because there are times when, i got to be honest, faith does waver. Faith does become hard to maintain in situations. But look at the rest of the verse. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's not my ability to hang on to it. Security comes from the fact that he who made the promise can be trusted. Not doing our best, not trying to hang on to to being faithful and, and hanging on to our faith all the time, but recognizing sometimes we struggle, but that hope that we have, that even, see, I can hope even when I struggle. I hope even in the midst of a struggle. I'm hoping, my hope is in the faithfulness of Christ, not in my ability to hang on that, because the one who promised the maintaining of that assurance, being fully justified, is on the faithfulness, based on the faithfulness of the one who made the promise, Jesus Christ. Now, the third exhortation is a, kind of strikes home in a pretty powerful way to us, or can. Verse 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know what I really love about this particular exhortation? The first two are, are somewhat of an individual, on an individual basis, somewhat of how we individually see ourselves in Christ and see our relationship. This one is about how we see ourselves in community. This wasn't about how we see ourselves and how we see our function and how we see our life playing itself out in community. This is body activity here. The real command here is to consider. What that means is to, to really to give concentrated effort, not just to have a passing thought about it, but to consider it, to think deeply, to process this a little bit. It's very intentional, it's very proactive activity that we're being called to. It's where I get the idea here that the church is not necessarily always safe. And frankly, that we don't really want it to be. We don't necessarily want it to always be safe. Not if our definition of safe is that we'll never be hurt. And for a lot of people, that's their definition of safe. Is that I'll never be hurt. I'll never experience pain. That any place that I experience pain, I should avoid. Well, you're going to avoid a lot of places. If that's the case, if safe means that we're simply free to be comfortable, live in complacency, 
then Lord, please don't let the church be safe. That's the last thing we want. Now, please understand me. I'm not talking about uh, being safe from abuse. I'm not talking about emotional or, or spiritual or even physical abuse that can happen in the church. I'm not talking about being manipulated or, or betrayed or, or, or churches that operate on the basis of intimidation and humiliation. I'm not talking about that kind of hurt. I'm not talking about that kind of pain. There are churches that do those things. There's people in churches who do those things. Leaders are to protect the sheep from that. That's not what I'm talking about when I say hurt is something we need to experience from time to time in the church. What does it mean to stir one another up to love and good works? You know, that little phrase here in the, in the English Standard Version translated stir up. In the NIV, it's translated spur, and the New American Standard translates stimulate. The ASV says to provoke, so it's a, a word that's got a lot of connotations to it. You know, in other, uh, some other Greek literature, it's actually that same word's translated as irritate or exasperate. So if you're here today without your spouse or without your child or without your parent, and you go home and they say, well, what'd you learn in church today? You can just say, well, I learned I'm supposed to irritate and exasperate you. It's this idea of sanding down and, and refining. Does that create an environment that we would always call safe? If we are to spur one another, to stimulate one another, to provoke one another, even to irritate, exasperate, is that really what safe means? You know, there's a lot of talk today about being safe and about feeling safe, and I'm glad. I think it's something that we haven't addressed enough. There's good reasons for people not to feel safe sometimes. There's good reasons for people not to feel safe with certain people. There are good reasons for people not to feel safe in churches. From time to time, I, I meet with someone who is, is, has been hurt in a church setting. They have an aversion to church because they've been deeply hurt, and they, just, they don't feel safe in the church, any church, just the whole idea of church. They don't feel safe there. Perhaps that's some of you. Perhaps you come in here with a bit of fear and trembling. Perhaps you are afraid to open up. Maybe you're afraid to really be honest afraid of really being known because maybe you tried that one time and it didn't work out so well. You tried that and, and, and you got burned in that process. Well, look, try again. Try again. Just try with someone different maybe. Healthy boundaries are important in abusive situations, manipulative or, or coercive situations. And so I'm glad we're paying attention to this idea. But maybe like most things, maybe sometimes we take it too far. And maybe sometimes we take it, for some anyway, to the point of saying, if I get hurt, then something's wrong. If I, I, I've been wrong, to be hurt is to be wronged. And you know what? To be hurt is not to be wronged necessarily. Those are not synonyms. Now, I, I refuse to, to quote the passage uh, from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Y'all probably know the passage that I'm talking about. It's very overused. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really um, way, way too often quoted. You know the passage I'm talking about? It's the one where Susan and Beaver are talking. You know, and, and uh, you know, it's the one where, where Susan says, you know, that, that uh, you know, is he, is he quite safe? And, and 
I just feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And, and Beaver says, safe? Who's anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Way overused. I would never quote that in a sermon. And um, <laughs> some of you will get that halfway through lunch. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, uh, is the church safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course it isn't safe, but it's good. It's imperfect. It's flawed. But it's God's plan. It's what he intended for us. And, and it's where we should feel most secure even when it hurts. Again, not talking about abusiveness. Talking about maybe being challenged sometimes when that's not comfortable. And I've been hurt in this church. I've been here 28 years. I have been hurt in this church. I've been hurt pretty bad from time to time. You know, if we're doing what we're supposed to do in the body of Christ, sometimes we're going to hurt each other. I remember when my son-in-law uh, came to ask if he could marry our daughter, and, and uh, we were sitting, we're sitting over at Grazani's over here in Embassy Suites, and, and he was, you know, really nervous, and I was just having a ball with it. And uh, he's... Um, you know, he's, 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 uh, well, um, you know, and, and uh, so we're, we're kind of him hawing along there. And, and uh, then he said something, he's, you know, as he's asking about wanting to marry her and telling me how well he's going to take care of her and all that. And he says, and I, I promise you, I'll never hurt her. I said, well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard anybody say. <laughs> I said, I hope you hurt her and I hope she hurts you. Hope y'all are honest enough with each other to speak truth in love. And guess what? Sometimes that hurts. You know, somebody in this church hurt me, and I've never forgotten it. I've never gotten over it. I've never forgiven and refused to forgive that person. I haven't forgotten, and I hope I never will, because it's probably one of the most important and powerful and appreciated lessons anyone's ever shared with me. I'll never forgive them because there's nothing to forgive. So we don't forgive hurts, we get forgive wrongings. And there's a difference between being hurt and being wronged. Sometimes when somebody hurts us, we need to thank them. And I'll never forgive that person because there's nothing to forgive and, and the hurt was a hurt but not a wronging. They did right by me in hurting me. They blessed me by being willing to take a risk and, and hurt my feelings and tell me the truth. Tell me something that I, was, that I missed. They loved me enough to, to come and, and they didn't want to see my ministry hampered or, or damaged by a character flaw that they saw in me. And so they took a risk and they loved me enough and loved me well and came and pointed that out to me. And I've never forgotten it and there's nothing to forgive. They hurt me, but they didn't wrong me. They considered how to stir me to loving good works. I'm grateful for it. See, that's how the body works. That's how the body gets healthy. And it's not always about correction. Our, all, all of our spurring one another to loving good deeds is not just about correction. That's just my story because I usually have things to be corrected. But... Um, that's, that's just one side of it. The other side of it. it might be rallying the team. It might be calling us to something outside of our comfort zone. You know, uh, about twice a year, I go and uh, I speak to the Iwana group. 
Truth be known, that is the most terrifying 20 minutes of my year. I would rather fill a coliseum and let me get up and speak to a coliseum full of of murderers, you know. I'm terrified to get in and speak to little children that I just like, what do I say? How do I communicate this? But Joe and, and Gerald and these guys, they pushed me out of my comfort zone. They encouraged me to do it. And I'm always glad that I did it. I just dreaded moving up to it. I'm not trying to light the fuse on a witch hunt. I'm not trying to light the fuse on all of us going and, and telling one another one thing or another and just feeling like we've got to be everybody's police. And it's our job to police the church and every little thing that somebody does that we don't agree with, we've got to point that out to them. I'm really talking mostly about thus saith the Lord's and, and character flaws and things that are, that are concrete. God may encourage you to say something, but walk carefully if, if it's not in those terms. Please don't miss verse 25. We're about out of time. But verse 25 is really part of the same sentence. Now, if you've got an NIV, it makes it look really like verse 25 is a fourth exhortation. It's really not. It's really part of the same sentence. It's not a separate from what verse 24 talks about. When verse 25 talks about not uh, forsaking our assembling together, not neglecting to meet together, um, it's, this is not a hammer to use on people to make them come to church. Now, have you ever seen the sign between Birmingham and Montgomery on the side of the road? Big billboard on the side of the road, picture of the devil. says, go to, the church, go to church or the devil will get you. I mean, I bet that motivates a lot of people to go to church as they go along there. Just makes us look look really sharp. But you know what? Verse 25 being part of that same idea, part of that same sentence. Verse 25 is about how you can accomplish verse 24. Verse 25 is about how it's possible for us to spur one another or stir one another up or or encourage one another toward loving good deeds and provoke them to that. It only works in the context of relationship. So the writer tells us, you want to be stirring one another up? Some of y'all are probably saying, hey, I know a lot of people around here that try to stir one another up. But you're trying to stir one another up to love and good works? Well, then you can't be neglecting meeting together. If you want to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, you've got to be together. To do that, you've got to be present. And let me tell you, this kind of exhorting of one another is not something you can just pop in and out and do. This is not something you can just show up from time to time in somebody's life and exhort them in that way. You've got to be plugged in. You've got to be plugged into that person. It takes relationship. It takes time. It takes presence to be able to have that kind of relationship where you can stir one another to love and good deeds and, and not be safe always with one another. Not walk on eggshells, afraid to say the wrong thing. It's afraid you might say something in the wrong way. You know, when people know that you care about them, you can mess it up really bad. And they still know that you care about them. And they may say to you, you know, that was about the worst way you could have said that to me. But in a sense, they're still going to appreciate that because they know you love them and you took a risk on their behalf. So the idea of being together, 
the kind of together that allows us to spur one another to love and good deeds. Probably takes more than the 50% attendance rate that's averaged around the nation. But not to do it in legalism. It's not an issue of legalism. It's an issue of relationship. It's not about I have to go to church or, or God will be mad at me. But we need you here so that the church won't be safe. We need you here so that it won't be a place that if your definition of safe is never hurt. Again, not talking about abuse. Not talking about somebody sinning against you. I'm talking about somebody loving you enough to speak truth in your life. Because I believe that when we do that, that the security that we experience in knowing that we are that loved more than compensates for the wounds we may experience being loved. You know, if you think about it, what child doesn't just intuitively know that the most secure place in their world is in the arms of loving parents who, if they need to, will hurt them. But it's hurting, not wronging. And we invite ourselves not to be reckless with each other, not to be ruthless with each other, to let our words be seasoned with salt so that they're palatable, but not to be afraid to challenge each other with the truths of the Scripture. But if we're going to do that, we've got to be present with each other. We've got to be engaged in one another's lives. Father, we are grateful that you call us to community. We are grateful that you have provided for us access into the holy place. That we have a new and living way that is completely accomplished by the one and once and for all shedding of Christ's blood. Father, we are grateful that we can come boldly before you through our great high priest. Father, teach us to love one another well, well enough to stir one another up, to be present with one another, to stir one another up, to love and good deeds. In Jesus' name.